0: Today, we reflect on the sufferings of Christ and on the greatest exchange that has ever been made. Jesus substituted for you. In this moment, it was our sin that was paid for so that we could go freely to heaven. I always appreciate this time of the church calendar because this gives us a moment to reflect on things we normally don't. We tend to avoid thinking about pain and suffering. It's unpleasant. Even thinking about the sufferings of Christ because we realize it should have been our suffering that he has endured. We tend to want to focus on the more positive things. Positive things about Jesus and what he went through, his teachings, his miracles. And of course, as we'll reflect on on Sunday, his resurrection. All of these things are good to think about. I'm not saying that that it's a bad thing at all. But we can't skip over the sufferings of Christ. Indeed, that's why he came in a body, isn't it? Christ didn't need a physical body to do miracles fact, as you can see, all through the Old Testament, he was able to do miracles just fine without a physical form. He didn't need a body to perform healings or raise the dead. But what he did need a body for was to feel pain. He needed a body in order to suffer and die. It wasn't possible in a divine nature. That's why he's God. God is by nature, by definition, not dependent on anything. You can't deprive God of life. He's the source of life itself. So in order to pay the penalty for our sins, that is death, he had to take on human nature so that this would be possible. On the cross, Jesus experiences both physical and spiritual pain. And so, at times like this, it's easy for us to try to emphasize one over the other. I've heard in a lot of different services that we will spend a lot of time going through the gruesome details of the physical pain that Jesus went through on the cross. And then I've also seen us in other services, people skip over the more physical pain because they want to address the spiritual pain of enduring the wrath of God for our sins. And we can give reasons for each approach. Say, well, we can spend more time on the physical because we can relate to that. We understand what it's like to be hurt. Then others will say, well, the spiritual pain, the absorbing of the wrath of God, well, that was the most important thing Jesus went through. So we'll spend time on that. But really, both of these things are important, which is why, as best as we can, we need to hold these things together. We can't overlook the physical pain even though it's hard for us to look at that. Nor can we ignore the spiritual pain that Jesus went through. We can't focus on the abstract at the expense of the concrete, nor the other way around. So as, much, as best as we can, let's try to focus on both as we remember what Jesus went through for us. As we know, on the physical side of things, Jesus went through quite a lot. He would have endured first a a whipping from the Roman soldier that would have inflicted terrible wounds on one's back. In fact, in some accounts, there are those that didn't have even survived that, the amount of blood and damage that would have been done to one's body. Some people succumbed even to just this punishment. And from there, after a whipping, Jesus was compelled to carry his own cross, at least at the start, as we see in John 17. But as all the other accounts spell out, someone else had to come along and carry the cross for him. This wasn't an act of mercy on the soldier's part. It was because Jesus was physically unable to carry something like that. This wasn't because Jesus was weak, because he wasn't disciplined in physical exercise. He was a carpenter by trade, most likely, taking on his father's work. So he would have known a thing or two about having to take down trees and saw them and shape them without our power tools or ease of lifting. So he likely was very strong. But even someone strong like that would have been rendered so weak, wouldn't have been able to carry a crossbeam for his own execution. And then he was nailed to a cross. There are, as we have learned more about what ancient civilizations were like and what the Roman cross would have looked like, it possibly looked like what I have featured behind me. But it's also possible, and indeed probably more likely, that all that he would have had would have been that crossbeam and would have been nailed to a tree. It would have had to put the nail through a piece of wood first to act as a washer to secure his feet to the tree. Would have pierced through. We have seen some accounts whether they tried to go through the the front of the foot. Others we have seen that would go through the heel of the foot. So have been piercing through a bone in order to make this adhesion possible. The way one would die on a Roman cross, you had a couple different ways in which that could be accomplished by being stretched out and nailed and hung in such a way. It paralyzes the diaphragm, so you can't draw breath. Or you can, as long as you can push up and pull up on those nail wounds that you have, which, because of the whipping he's just received, would have had him scratching this already open back along the rough bark of the tree. This would have been something he would have had to endure for hours until his arms and legs were simply unable to make that anymore and dies of asphyxiation. Others would have simply have passed away from the loss of blood or just dehydration, a process that could take days to endure. This is what Jesus went through. Now, it must be stressed that this is not something that they managed to do to Jesus and outsmarted him and took his life. Jesus is very clear, as he says in John chapter 10, verse 18, that no one takes his life from him. But is one that he willingly gives up and lays down, nevertheless, he stays on this cross, he chooses to endure this suffering for us, and beyond just the physical pain that he would have been going through, there would have also been the mental toll of the shame that would, he was been enduring at this time. Victims of crucifixion were stripped naked to be jeered at by the crowds. Jesus also wasn't alone here on the cross, but was with two other criminals were next to him, or everyone else would have figured that they were other criminals and endure guilt by association. Have you ever been a part of a group where one member of that group had done something shameful And you are unable to clear your name at first, and so everyone assumes because you are part of the group that you must be a part of that. Or at the very least, we're approving of the shameful act that someone else had done. You can feel that shame and guilt, even though you didn't do the wrong thing. But suffer the guilt of association and the sneering and judgmental accusations of other people. Jesus endures this as well. Beyond even all of this would have been the shame of the Old Testament. Because Deuteronomy 21, 23 makes clear that anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed of God. All of these things that he takes into himself. And this is all just the physical side, the mental side, psychological side of crucifixion. And, of course, it's here that we make the transition to the spiritual pain that Christ is going through, enduring the wrath of God. This is a mystery as how this is accomplished, that he is enduring both the wrath of God because of the love of God for his people. How all of that works out mathematically is difficult for us to understand, and Scripture doesn't spell it out for us very clearly. But one thing that it makes very clear is is that he is taking our punishment. He is absorbing all of the horrors of hell in these few short hours on the cross, taking all of the sin of his elect people onto himself and willingly suffers. Of course, now the question that we have, is this is what he has gone through, how do people respond One source, it points out that basically each response, every response that you could have to Jesus can be summarized in the response of the two criminals hung on either side of him. You have the one that looks to Jesus and is hoping that maybe he is the Messiah, but he can prove it first by doing something for me. Get me down off this cross and then we'll see how things go. And when, of course, Jesus doesn't deliver, All he does is hurl scorn at him and hatred for Christ. But the other, somehow, despite what his eyes can see, a bleeding and dying Savior looks to him and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Notice what's not there in that question, in that request. It's not, get me off this cross, please, and remember me. He looks to Jesus, and thanks to the Spirit-inspired faith that had been put in that man's heart, was able to see what was the most important thing. He was able to look beyond his own circumstances, even beyond his own death, and realize that up there is a victorious king that is coming into a kingdom. Notice also that this man doesn't offer anything else up. He doesn't say, well, Lord, I hope you you recognize that I have not been hurling as much abuse as my compatriot over there. I hope you recognize that even though I've done bad things, I'm very, very sorry for them. And I hope you'll take this into account. Or while my adult life has not been great, I attended synagogue, at least when I was a child. And I hope that this will earn my way into your good graces. He knows none of that stuff's going to hold water. He knows what he is. He knows he's a criminal. He's recognizing what the state has already recognized as well. That's why he's hanging on the cross to begin with. But he looks to Jesus. And not only does he see a victorious king. But he sees a forgiving savior. One who can look at him. And despite all that he's done. And say, I will. And today... You will be with me in paradise. Those are the two reactions. Those are the two responses. Where are you on this scale? Because we're on one or the other. Anything that is not a faithful look to Christ, not offering up anything of yourself, but looking unto Jesus for your salvation, that's the one that finds forgiveness. Anything else? Going to Jesus to what you can get out of him? Going to Jesus when it's convenient? Going to Jesus as a spare tire to help you get the rest of the way through? Those responses don't make it. That's not a look that Jesus sees. So where are you? Which criminal are you? You say, it's like, well, if I'm honest, I think I'm that other one. I've done so many things, I don't even know that I could ask Jesus to remember me. Well, good news, you've got the right heart. Now look to him and ask. This is what the Savior stands ready to save you. Just ask him. He promises that all who come to him, he will in no wise cast out, he will not leave you behind. take a vote of no confidence in yourself and put it all in Christ and you will find yourself united to him. And from here, Jesus eventually lays down his life and yields his spirit as the gospel writers communicate. And his body is left behind It is a true death. The Romans don't question this. They are experts in death. They're the ones who've designed this particular method of execution. They know a dead body when they see one. So Jesus has truly died and is truly buried in the tomb. Thus completing the entire human experience from birth to death. There is nowhere that you can go that Jesus has not already been first, including death. And it's here that we leave him and we wait. He is sealed in the tomb. The disciples look on and prepare their spices and prepare their perfumes. Decomposition doesn't begin until day four after death. Jesus has said multiple times that it was only going to be three days and he would rise. But the disciples clearly don't expect a resurrection. They know what a dead body looks like, too. And they have assumed they're going to need some spices. They're going to need some perfumes. So they sit and prepare and wait. And for now, so do we.